0: Hi, my name's Noreen Jamil, and this is...
1: Emily-Kate Stevens.
0: Both of us have been diagnosed with long COVID.
1: And we've created this podcast dedicated to the condition. Welcome to the Long COVID Sessions. So, Noreen, how was your week?
0: Uh, I feel like I'm standing on the edge of a precipice where I'm feeling not too bad... But I can feel that any slight thing is going to tip me over
1: into another into another bad couple of weeks. And by slight thing, do you mean the fact that literally every single child in this country now has a horrendous cold?
0: Yes, including mine, who took actually had a week off school and uh, had all the COVID symptoms, but his PCR was negative. So, no, I'm, yeah, I feel slight like I can feel my allergies they're kind of sitting there I can feel my palpitations come and go I'm not sleeping so still not sleeping yeah it doesn't bode well but I'm actually starting to push myself a little bit more I don't know if that's a bad thing might be who knows
1: pacing we've got to pace (laughs) we've got to pace it's all about the pacing have have you tried taking drugs for the sleep
0: um no I've kind of gone the other way I've tried kind of sworn off any kind of supplements any drugs um feeling rebellious i guess Hello. <laughs> How's
1: how was your week sweetheart I'm, I'm definitely in a kind of meagrenous phase but i don't remember a time recently when i've not been in a meagrenous phase um i went away for a couple of days with some friends um, which is the first time that i've been away from both the children and my house and in this whole period and it it was it was great it was so nice it was really life-affirming and we had some amazing times together but um, I did a couple of yoga classes I did sort of energy workshops and yesterday I was pretty much on my knees I mean by the time I got home to the kids I was trying to give the kids their bath and I I'm literally lying on the floor, like my whole body is so weak and so heavy. So, I think that one thing that I hadn't really considered so much is it's not just about the overexertion of physical exercise, the overexertion of uh, cognitive things, you know, with with uh, work, but it's also incredibly draining to be with other people for forty eight hours and this this is no disrespect to them but um but i i don't think that i can physically do it at the moment um it's it's literally knocked me out so today i've got i've got the shake so badly i'm just it's not great i can see
0: you shaking no you know after 18 months we would hope for some kind of
1: light at the end of the tunnel but this week we did speak to someone who has seen differences and has made a recovery
0: well we really wanted this week to give people something to shoot for um i know we've had some really interesting talks with doctors and experts about what we can do but like what what is it that we're trying to achieve and we spoke to dr amy small
1: she's a gp in scotland and from what came out of that conversation is it really does seem to be time and pacing
0: We have a special guest with us today who's managed to recover from long COVID. Is that right?
2: <laughs> it's always quite scary saying that, I think. Um I think that's the thing with this, is you're never quite sure when it might come round again, and that's always the, the bit that sort of sits in the back of your mind. And and I say, you know, I say I'm recovered. I'm I'm still not quite who I was before. And I don't know how much of that will ever come back a hundred percent, but I class myself as incredibly lucky that I can now work full time. I can exercise. I can socialise. I can drink alcohol again. Oh this my goodness! I know <laughs> that is which a big thing. Do. The tolerance was just ridiculous. I felt so ill after even the smallest glass of mm-hmm. anything before, and um, I've been practicing, and I can now. <laughs> I can now have a glass of wine and not feel horrendous. I was talking to my nutritionist, actually, because I'm very lucky that I've I, I managed to have someone that can help me. And she was saying like one of her bits where she knows that people have recovered from chronic illness is that they can tolerate sugar and alcohol. <laughs> She's like, I know I shouldn't say that as a nutritionist, but it does go to show that you've come a long way. And, and so, yeah, um, for the most part, yes, I would say I recovered. But I say that tentatively.
1: So can you um, talk us through the sort of, timeline that that is that this has taken you and we will get on to the the sort of process but can you just talk us through the timeline of it
2: yeah so i got sick april 2020 11th of april um and i think like most people had the sort of typical symptoms um and um cough headache um, aches and pains all the rest of it breathlessness um, and um long and the short of it is that i just kept having fever fever for weeks um i had lots of tests but nothing kind of came back specifically and um i ended up having fever for at least 7 months i think um every single day um and if i did more stuff my fever would go higher and when i rested it wouldn't be quite so high but i every single day had fever and there had bits when i sort of felt physically a bit better not quite as breathless um So it was about June time that I did uh, a half day GP surgery and that put me in bed for seven days, uh, no, 10 days even, sorry, where I couldn't breathe properly. I I couldn't drink um, because just lifting my hand up to my lips was fatiguing. I couldn't chew on cereal because my jaw ached. Um, And um, so that was sort of two two months in, which was a really big setback for me and, and kind of made me sit up and realize that this was much bigger than me. Um, and uh, much more complicated than I'd ever um, appreciated and and really made me appreciate how much cognitive fatigue had a big part to play in my physical health, which um, was quite scary at that point. And over the summer, I I, um, just learned how to pace, um, which um, certainly meant that I wasn't doing as much peaking and troughing um, as I I had done boom-bust, as they call it in in physio terms. Um, And then it got to September time, when it was becoming apparent that um, I was probably going to lose my job um, as a GP and um, I had a meeting with my partners where I was going to find out what, what my you know future held. And just before that meeting, um, I was quite anxious, understandably, and I had some out-of-date beta blockers that I'd been prescribed for when my father was dying. And I thought, I'll just take those and see if it gets me through the meeting. And it was at that point... That not only did it sort of help me feel a bit better during the awful meeting, I felt a lot less breathless and I could walk up the stairs without stopping, which I hadn't been able to do for months. And it was around this time that I'd been hearing lots of mutterings on social media about dysautonomia and POTS syndrome, and and I thought, you know, I wonder is this what's going on with me? Because I'd noticed that every time I stood up and even just brushing my teeth with an electric toothbrush, my heart rate was you know over a hundred, and I thought it's very odd for someone who had been able to run several times a week, um, 5K easily at a time, I, I, I was really tachycardic and breathless just brushing my teeth. And that for me was a turning point in terms of sort of my general health. I, I spoke to my GP and said, you know, I think I've got POTS. Could I try a beta block or a different one that's more appropriate? And so I started that drug at that point. And within two weeks of the end date of my GP job, I could start locoming again. Um, very slowly. I built back very slowly and on a, a, a sort of longish phase return. But I really wasn't breathless anymore. I wasn't fatigued in the same way that I had been. Um, I could now walk as fast as my five year old. Um, or He was four at the time, which I hadn't been able to do for months. And from there, I just really physically felt better. Although I still had, you know, every time the kids had a cold, Boy, would it set me
1: back? Yeah, we talk about that a lot. It's, they come home with anything, any little virus, or anyone's got a cold, and it, but it doesn't just give you the cold; it triggers all your, it triggers all the symptoms.
2: Yeah, exactly. And you, so you would go from feeling better to oh god, have I got COVID again? Um, just every time they had a cold, my temperature would shoot to thirty nine, um, and I would be myalgic and fatigued for a couple of days, and just wasn't quite right. So I still had sort of ups and downs and setbacks along the way. But my physical health had been much better since I'd started on that beta blocker. And then every time the kids got a cold, I wasn't quite as sick as the time I had been the time before. So
1: you could see slight improvements each time.
2: Yeah. And I remember saying to my GP, like, am I going to be in bed every time I get a cold for the rest of my life? Is that ever going to feel normal again? And so we we had talked around that and she said, well, I do see people who have had severe illnesses that that it does get better, but it can take years rather than than weeks or months. And then I guess it was probably in the spring that I had noticed I could I could walk a lot more. I could do 12,000 steps at my own pace and not get post exertional malaise, not be exhausted the next day and not be achy. And I thought, you know, actually, that was a big thing to not feel grim. After having done a lot of walking, which previously it would have put my temperature right up and put me in bed for a few days afterwards. So as I managed to tolerate walking more, I I sort of would just gently pick up the pace. And sometimes if the kids wanted to do something, I might run after them, which I hadn't dared do before. Because whenever I had done that before, I really paid the price. And then just bit by bit started to do couch to 5k running which again I did it at my pace so if I had a day when I didn't feel like doing it I didn't do it I didn't push myself into doing it you know at the beginning I would monitor my heart rate and make sure my heart rate didn't go too high because I was anxious that I would then feel really unwell afterwards but bit by bit I just managed to kind of get to that point where actually exercising felt okay and it felt good again you know rather than being scared of it I could feel good about it and then over the course of the summer yeah I went on holiday to France to see my husband's family and tried some alcohol and didn't feel awful and you know just bit by bit just realizing that actually my body was able to handle so much more than it could have done a year ago um, and there's lots of little anniversaries at the moment I think you know so this was the time that I'd, I'd lost my job and all these things and thinking back to how I felt then and comparing it to how I feel now in so many different ways you know is just such a wonderful feeling did you
1: realize at at the time quite the difference between how you are normally you know if you think back to a year ago were you really aware because I think there are phases over the last year where I really had no idea how sick I was and I kept on pushing and it was only since I really stopped and recognized that I do have an illness and I can't just put push through it that I have begun to make gradual gains
2: absolutely I mean I think it's difficult because you almost gaslight yourself don't you at times you sort of think oh I, I, am I am I actually that ill
1: I do that all the time though I think am I am I making this up am I causing myself to shake like this what what how can I be creating this
2: exactly and I think you know in some ways we're almost enemies but I think because we look okay uh, we don't look ill uh we don't look disabled we don't, you know, carry a big banner across our forehead that says I'm thick. Um, sometimes you can you can sort of lull yourself into a full sense of, oh, maybe, maybe I should just do these things because actually maybe I'll be fine. And maybe it's ridiculous. And because people around you are kind of looking at you going, you look all right. That you end up, I think, sometimes just just wondering, actually, what is all this about? And am I making this up? Um, and it is now that I look back and I can milestone and go, oh, no. You really weren't well. Yeah,
0: exactly. Just listening to your story, was there a time you actually thought, "Okay, I've got something and it's long COVID? Because here you are, you're dealing with all these different symptoms. It doesn't sound to me like it actually clicked, that there was some kind of, here it is, I've got long COVID. And it's. I know it was pretty early on, April 2020.
2: It was four weeks in when I still had fever that I emailed a colleague in the infectious disease department and said, can I go out the house or am I going to be typhoid Mary and infect everyone around me? And he said, "Oh, absolutely, you're not infectious, but we need to see you because it's not normal to have fever at this point." And it was kind of at that point I was like, "Oh, you know, it is." I figured it was not normal to have fever after a month. I mean, I'm a doctor after all. <laughs> I knew that if if I'd been seeing me, I would have sent me for some investigations. But I think that's where we probably our own worst enemies as doctors. We just kind of crack on with stuff and just hope it will go away. Um, and, um, and it was then that I started to have tests and that's when I saw the infectious diseases department who said, yeah, we're hearing there are people like you, but we don't know much about it. And they did all these initial tests and said that well, they've all come back normal. We'll phone you in three months. Off you go. So it was kind of that sort of combination of being told, yeah, it's not right, but there's nothing we can do about it. Go away. And it was then it's at that point that Paul Garner's article had come out in the BMJ saying that he had this thing, this COVID that didn't go away. And it was at that point that on Twitter stuff started to pick up about long COVID, that it all started to click into place, that this is what my husband and I both had, although our illnesses were quite different. Um, And it was at that point then I started to look into it a bit more. And then I found there was a doctor's group with doctors who had long COVID and sort of joined that group and then began to see everything that was coming out. And it then became very apparent that this this is what we had. But um, yeah, it was a slow, a slow process. I'm sure you guys probably um, had the same.
0: I mean, for me, it was completely, I did not think I had anything kind of to do with COVID because I had my COVID. It was very mild. And six weeks later, I find I couldn't go up the stairs without getting breathless. So I thought my heart was bad. So I went to see a cardiologist and I walked in the door and I sat down and he said, no, I've seen this a lot. You've got long COVID. I hadn't been able to put the two together at all. And I think that's the same for a lot of people. Yeah, They just go about thinking they're tired or unfit and not realising.
2: And especially us in the first wave, I would say. And I, I see that difference between the first waivers and the second waivers and whatever, whatever wave we're on now, God knows. But I think, you know, we were left to get on with this on our own.
1: Yeah, because people didn't really know to start with that it existed. As you say, when you first went there, they were saying, oh, we are hearing this from people. And I think that was the situation for a lot of the people from the very first wave. What I do think is very interesting from what you're saying, obviously, a lot of people in the health profession contracted COVID and... Uh, Therefore, a lot of them have long COVID. But your GP group is very interesting to me because what I found with my GP here and what we're hearing other people have found is that the GPs, not that they didn't necessarily have any knowledge of it, but they weren't really prepared to offer any help or guidance on what to do with it. So in joining together with the other GPs, was that to aid your own rehabilitation and recovery or were you also trying to learn from each other in terms of how you perform clinically
2: and it was it was initially a peer support group we're all struggling in this together and how how we can survive it and then gradually that group grew to not just doctors with long covid but also those who are interested in it um so those who had patients and there 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 are still posts now from doctors who, who don't immediately have it who say look I've got this patient with xyz symptoms and I don't know where to go with them and 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 what should I do now probably less so now because in England they have long covid clinics which we don't yet have in Scotland and and um and I think are poorly developed elsewhere and not all the long covid clinics in England are are great either um but Gradually, I think a lot of that knowledge that was shared initially has then sort of spilled over into those long COVID clinics where people are now getting more answers. But certainly for us in Scotland, you know, that there, there is nothing.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about the provision in, in Scotland?
2: Yeah, so up until a couple of weeks ago, the only provision financially from Scottish government was for research. So five million pounds was put into research for people with long COVID the argument that our first minister had was that there's no point really in setting up long COVID support until we know how to treat it, um, which I argued vehemently against because actually there are so many treatments, as you've heard with me, um, to for people with certain types of long COVID. Um, and then, so we've been doing a lot of lobbying. Um, and then it was announced um, a couple of weeks ago that 10 million pounds is going to be invested into long COVID services. We don't use the word clinics in Scotland. It's a dirty word. Um, My my fear, though, is that it's going to be predominantly rehab based. Um, And what I'm really arguing for is that we have multidisciplinary teams with a clinician embedded in them. Um, What we've seen from long COVID clinics in England um, is the services that work best for patients are where you have access to both a clinician who can see you and investigate you as appropriate combined with rehab. We know that if you have rehab alone, a lot of people are too anxious about what's going on, that they won't engage in rehab because they're worried that there's some underlying structural abnormality with their heart or their brain or whatever else. Um, and we also know that if you just see a clinician and are told, "Yeah, your tests are normal, off you go, that you're not going to get better either because you need the rehab. Um, so there are some clinics in England which are, I think, unfortunately, just purely rehab based. And I don't think that they are probably getting the results that that we'd want and there are some that are more multidisciplinary that are seeming to be a lot better so I'm lobbying for the fact that we need these multidisciplinary teams across Scotland the problem we have you know is rurality. I did a talk for Highland out of hours GPs last November and they'd had hardly any cases of Covid up there so the what they were seeing was long Covid in students who'd been in Glasgow or Edinburgh who were coming home but didn't have an awful lot of experience, and those numbers were small. So I guess that's the thing we've always got to factor in here: is the rivality aspect, and whatever works for, for for Barry and Bathgate's got to work for Barry in, in, on the other Barra, you know. And so I think that's always going to be the problem: is the equity, and, and not the postcode lottery that that we see already in England.
1: Are they rolling the uh, these services out as part of GP? practices or is it going to be a sort of more hospitalized
2: we don't know yet um the the funding is is going to be divided across the health boards and then it's up to the health boards to work out how to use that that money appropriately
0: going back to your story Mm. pacing Mm -hmm. beta blockers and i was Mm -hmm. reading on some of your twitter threads that you're seeing a nutritionist or you were seeing a nutritionist what advice did they give you and what worked
2: initially when i when i met with my nutritionist she had advised uh one of the first things she said was give up sugar sugar a is really bad for fatigue because you get peaks and troughs so you're feeling down and then you eat the sugar and you feel good and then you feel awful later and she said you'll just get into a really bad cycle with sugar and she also said sugar is really inflammatory so in terms of ongoing fevers sugar can fuel that um her immunology knowledge you know, wipe mine out of the park. I mean, she was talking about stuff I hadn't read since med school days in textbooks but I had a vague <laughs> inkling. and she's a very, very bright woman who, who, who knows her stuff. So I was really impressed by her clinical knowledge, which I think kind of also helped me to trust her because I think as a clinician, it's always hard to trust allied health professionals who maybe aren't regulated in the same way and stuff like that. And I'm just probably a bit old school on that front. She said initially sugar, and then she said dairy. Dairy's also really inflammatory. And not great for gut health and things like that, so I cut out dairy, and then for a while, I also did um gluten free completely, um which she said also in terms of like how your body's immune system and stuff works, even if you there's no sort of celiac disease or anything like that. gluten just isn't great so essentially, my husband and I kind of moved to a more sort of whole food um vegan style diet flexitarian or whatever the fancy word is these days, but we we essentially um really looked at what we were eating and and really took care to make sure that what we were eating was not going to make things worse. I'd also been recommended to see an osteopath. Um, So my friend with ME suggested something called the Perrin technique, which is essentially lymphatic drainage. And he, Perrin himself, had created a long COVID protocol for this lymphatic drainage. And it was interesting because, again, totally out of my comfort zone. Um, but the practitioner I had was very experienced, had had years and years of, of, of seeing patients with ME and reassuringly told me, you don't have ME. And I think as much hearing that, you know, for me was amazingly positive, um, in terms of my mindset to say, okay, well, yeah, okay, we can, we can do this. I will get better from this. It's just taking longer than I, than I think, but that was really helpful. And she actually helped with, I was deaf in one ear through COVID and really bad vertigo and she helped kind of manipulate stuff and all that got a lot better, which was...
1: I had a friend who says that she has had her long COVID cured by... An osteopath or a cranial osteopath. Was yours osteopathy or cranial osteopathy? She,
2: she did a bit of both, I think. It's always hard to know, you know, how much is that? So she gave me this thing. I had to do lymphatic drainage at home three times a day. It was quite time consuming. It's weird. I had to massage my breasts. I had to massage my face. and But it gave me something to do to make me feel like I was doing something to help myself. And whether it was that or there was just someone who was listening to me and spending time with me, who knows? You know, um, but I, I was in a fortunate position that I had the um, income to do that, you know, and I think that's always the thing with all of these things, isn't it, that it's a horribly inequitable place that we are all in where lots of people can't afford to do these things. So, yeah, for me, really, it was the the nutritional aspect, that giving up sugar and caffeine and alcohol and all that stuff, you know. um, Yeah, I didn't talk about the caffeine and alcohol, but that's almost kind of goes without saying, again, if you're going to have peaks and troughs of caffeine or peaks and troughs of alcohol, that's not going to help fatigue
1: your husband has done some of these things with you in terms of he's changed his diet he's still suffering from long covid would you say he hasn't had such a a recovery you know as you or hasn't got to the stage same stage as you
2: our illnesses were always different from the beginning he never had fever even even when he had the covid he didn't have fever so that that initial illness was different for both of us um but he struggles a lot more with cognitive fatigue although I have just persuaded him to go and see Michaela because he's held off all this time so I'm hoping that now she can help him with that because it really helped me um, so um, although the, the, the basic diet was changed for both of us the, the, there are supplements and things that she prescribed for you um, that he
1: didn't have for me Yeah, okay. that he
2: didn't have you know and he kind of made it up as he went along with different suppliers and all the rest of it but I think that's the thing is a lot of us have been making it up as we go along and I see that on peer support groups and forums and stuff people going oh Oh, are you taking quercetin and who's taking theanine and who's taking B12 and who's taking vitamin D? And and we're all kind of just making it up as we go along. And my, my dream is that, you know, we can get Michaela's advice embedded into kind of NHS type stuff. You know, like, I think it's really difficult because as medics, we don't learn about that stuff. And actually a lot of the training we have in terms of, dietary stuff is so basic and, and old-fashioned and, and wrong frankly you know we're all we were told you know if you eat too many calories you, you you get fat and we now know that you know obesity and all these things are so far more complex than, than calories in and calories out but we as medics are way behind that because our training was so basic on that so when it comes to anything more complicated in terms of stuff that we're not even allowed to prescribe then we have very very little knowledge and I think a lot of that because it's unregulated as well is is it's hard to get decent you know information on um but certainly something I think we should all be looking at
1: yeah um you started with the beta blockers because you're a Gp and you felt that that is something that would help your symptoms you come out with knowledge of POTS and dysautonomia and things is that the way the GPs should be looking at each person that, that comes into them thinking okay I recognize this symptom how can we potentially treat that angle of it even if they can't do something for the the overall body is that how they should be handling things?
2: Yeah I think it's difficult isn't it because we We are trained in a systems-based approach. You know, you've got your heart problems and your head problems and all the rest of it. And we are, as GPs, very much trained to look holistically at at patients and not just focus on the chest box and, and the rest of it. I think in the past, particularly as a GP myself, I would be faced with someone, for example, with ME, who had multiple different symptoms. And I would just panic because I thought, God, I can't help them. They've got so much stuff going on. I've got 10 minutes. How on earth can I help this poor person who's got a gazillion different things wrong with them and none of them fit in a textbook and I've never been taught anything about it and is it all in their head and what do I do with it? Whereas I think now I've begun to realise how much actually we do just need to break things down. And if you have got a chronic illness, you're going to have multiple different symptoms but when you go to see your GP, try and make a list of everything that's going on and then try and pick on two, three things that are really affecting your quality of life. Because I think that's a thing that, you know, you can say I've got chest pain or you can say I'm breathless and you can say these things. But unless you explain, I'm so breathless, I can't actually walk my kid to school. And if I do, I'm then in bed for two hours afterwards. And then, you know, I think sometimes it's trying to impress upon the impact so that even if they go, well, we'll do a chest x-ray and we'll do a heart tracing, that when those things come back normal, you're trying to say, yeah, but the impact that that's having on me is such that I can't do X, Y, Z. I think sometimes that can impress upon your clinician to actually realise that there is actually a lot more going on here than just perceived breathlessness or perceived symptoms.
1: I think that's that's the, the exactly the kind of thing that our listeners want to here is just practical things that they can take to their medical professional
2: and if I think back let's say there's a 25 year old girl who's had an illness recently and she then says to me oh I'm I'm tachycardic my heart's racing I'm feeling breathless I've got chest pain it's worse than when I'm in bed at night everything in my head prior to this would have gone "Mm, she sounds a bit anxious you know and actually all of those symptoms are symptoms of POTS dysautonomia um and I will have missed people with it in the past, but, but I'd never learned about it. It certainly wasn't anything that we'd ever learned about at medical school. And, and, and I'd heard it vaguely in passing at once. And I do remember having gone onto the website at one point, but it, it wasn't something that I saw enough of to really understand it. And unfortunately, I think there's quite a lot of people during this, this pandemic who have been diagnosed with di- depression or anxiety over the phone, given medication for it, but not actually had anyone lay a hand on their pulse and go, ooh. You it's a bit fast. This is
0: this, one of the saving graces is that so many medical professionals have got long COVID. So there is an empathy yeah. and an understanding that you don't get in most diseases. So when you go and see your GP, maybe he knows a colleague who's got very similar symptoms. And that's helpful. That's really helpful for this massive cohort.
2: That's what we're trying to do. Those of us who are more active or have the networks now, I've always been very lucky and I have a platform through my previous medical political work that I've done, that I had a certain number of Twitter followers, I had the ability to connect with other doctors and say, hang on a minute, this is big. You know, and actually we don't know enough about this and you need to start going and learning about this. And those of us who have got that ability, I think, are banging our drums as loud as we possibly can, getting in as many articles or other things that we can do to get our voices heard. Because actually, as you say, I always had a hell of a lot of sympathy, but no empathy. And that's a big leap and a big change. Um, and I hold my hands up. This has made me a far better doctor than than I was before.
1: Interesting. Do, do you think that the GPs are mainly reliant on that kind of peer support and gaining knowledge from each other rather than from our governments. From what you know of Scotland and from other GPs you've connected with, are people getting good guidance yet?
2: No, because it's very difficult to reach out to people in silos. And unfortunately, that's what, what we have. You know, we might work with sort of three or four or five colleagues, you know, in a practice, but everyone is just knee deep. And so overworked and so busy and desperately just trying to scrabble together what they can to get through the day that to then sit down and go away and read about stuff that there actually is no decent guidance on yet. We don't you know. We've got nice guidance, but um, it's vague Um, at best. It it tells us there's an illness, but it doesn't really tell us an awful lot more about what we what we do about it. Um, GPs are desperate to have long COVID clinics they can refer to um, because the patients are so complicated. But in Scotland we haven't got any, and those that we do have in England we know either have very long waiting lists or, or or some aren't even taking patients on at the moment. So we there are there's a there's a module by the Royal College of GPs, there's an online module, but then you've got to go home and say, All Right, I'm gonna spend an hour tonight in my spare time, you know, when I'd rather be having dinner with my family to do this. So I think I'm trying, you know, there are some bits that are coming out, sort of bite-sized information. I think that's really helpful. You know, people are willing to listen to webinars every now and then if they're interested. Um, And I think just as much as we can just keep kind of promoting the knowledge that we're gaining in various networks, then hopefully it will get out there. And I'm lucky that um, I got accepted to do a talk at the Royal College of GP conference in in uh, october where there'll be a lot of gps there so at least then that's another way so it's just constantly trying to, to to get in where we can as clinicians to say because and the sad fact is is clinicians will listen to other clinicians you know because they trust they trust each other so you yeah. can have 25 patients come to you and tell something but actually when a clinician sits up and says all oh, this you go, oh must be true then you know and that <laughs> that's a terrible thing to admit but i think ultimately that's that is what it is and anyone that doesn't say that, I think, is probably being a little bit disingenuous.
0: How long have you been well for now? Are we are we counting weeks or months?
2: Um, I will. I've I've come off my medication completely. I would say about three weeks ago. That is a big landmark for me. I said feeling feeling well since since late spring. Um, and are you still
1: taking your supplements? Are there some things that you yeah. are going to retain?
2: Yeah, I just had my last consultation um, with Michaela the other day, and, and there's some things that I'm retaining um, sort of for long-term, just general health stuff, um, but managed to cut back massively. I mean, gosh, initially I had to get one of these deset boxes where you, you put all your pills in for all the different things, you know, and it didn't all fit into one one <laughs> one thing. Um, but, yeah, so massively cut back on, on all of those things. And, yeah, and as I said, now I can I can tolerate sugar, when I when I want to I'm trying not to eat too much of it but I, I can if I, if I want to and and those sorts of things so and the tolerance
1: yeah. of is really or not even exercise in terms of running which is fantastic for you but just the tolerance of being able to walk with your kids and things is yeah. something that so many people are just hankering after and people right now just don't know that they're ever going to get there so yeah. is there any advice that you would recommend for everyone across the board long COVID sufferers of things that we should or shouldn't be doing
2: pacing we all need to learn how to pace that is one of the most important things I think I've learned in this whole journey and pacing doesn't just mean do stuff slowly which is what I thought it did Um, you know I think I sort of take it back to when I was really ill it taught me that if I was going to cook a meal I would go to the kitchen and I wouldn't stand to peel my veg I would sit to peel my veg and then after I'd peeled the veg, I would go and have a rest. And then I would go back later and cut the veg and then have a rest. And then I would go back and cook the bloody veg and have <laughs> a rest. But, you know, that what that was the rate that I had to do it at. And I think that's that's the difference between pacing and going more slowly.
1: And it's an and, acceptance and, of that being a complete change in, in your life oh, instead God, of yeah. like trying to Push on through and then crash. Push on through and then crash. Which I think so many of I us mean, do.
2: Well, Taipei personality, used to working night shifts, having young babies. You know, just been able to abuse my body for years and years and years yeah. and not. It pay, sounds
1: like all of us. Sounds like exactly, exactly.
2: You know. Um, and we, we, we all do that. We all just push through. I think particularly as women as well, I think, that there's a, there's a certain, you know, sorry, men out there. Um, but I do think there is a certain amount of us having, you know, coped with as much as we have done in terms of being pregnant and children and sleep night shift deprivation and then working and sleep, you know, all the rest of it, that we have always just got on with it. And you can't do that. Um, and I think, you know, in the early days, I knew that if I was going to, to to, when I was was going back to work if I was going to do a shift in the morning then I wouldn't arrange to go for a cup of coffee with a friend in the afternoon because that was stupid because I had to pace because I was going to be tired from the morning and you have to learn to you know pace your social life I remember saying to friends look I can see you for 45 minutes um but I can't see you for longer than that and I might look normal and that might be weird but I am going to cut off our conversation after that point because I need to then go and rest. So it was about trying to um learn how to do that which felt completely alien. So pacing absolutely that's the first thing I say to all of my patients with long covid. Pace 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 and pace some more. Um and I think sometimes you do have to go back to those those fundamental basics um if you are having a relapse or or, or not feeling good and remembering what that what that feels like. And then I would say, yeah, cutting out sugar, I think. Um, and, and it's interesting. I spoke to a colleague who works in a in a long COVID clinic down south in Southampton. He said the first thing he says to everyone, it gets them to keep a food diary. And he's like, the number of people that are guzzling lucasade to just get through. And they're basically poisoning themselves in that sense of, you know, all the caffeine and all the sugar to just feel less fatigued and actually making it so much worse for themselves so I would say those two things are my sort of fundamental basics are we
0: talking processed sugar or you can have fruit
2: you can have fruit yeah or I, I could and um, maybe some people can't uh, but I could and, and and um, and I'm learning <laughs> like to um, substitute sugar with sort of if you're cooking sort of little bits of maple syrup rather than refined sugar so maple
1: syrup and honey are kind of okay but it's the highly processed sugars that we're trying to yeah. avoid yeah
2: Um, and, and initially, you know, I didn't even have any of the sort of maple syrups and things like that, but just had fruit. Um, so yeah, those, those are kind of my sort of two mega top tips. Um, and then I think really just, you know, trying to develop a relationship with your GP, you know, (laughs) trying to, and I I appreciate it's so hard. And especially I think for so many of us who've been so well, who've never needed to see our GPs, a lot of us don't know our GP. They don't know us. It's very difficult at the moment to do that um but actually trying to 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 keep checking back in because I think that's the problem is that when I see patients you know I'll sort of send them away with right let's try this and I'll see you again in four weeks time and and I think maybe we don't always not so good at initiating that that follow-up yeah aspect of it and 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 I think that's something that's I've learned a lot from this process is of saying right I'll see you again in four weeks' time. And then we're going to talk about where you're at at that point.
1: I imagine psychologically that's very important for people as well, to feel like they yeah. have someone that they can go to.
2: And I think, as and if you're a patient with this, say to the GP, can I see you again in four weeks? You know, can you book that in for me? Because there are, you know, and maybe the GP can't. Maybe maybe there are constraints that mean that they can't do that. But maybe they can, you know. And I think just trying to develop that, that doctor-patient relationship to understand the chronic illness better is a good thing. I
1: was talking to a friend the other day who is a GP but has also been a very good friend of mine for a long time. And uh she was saying but if you look at your history you have th- this 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 kind of it it fits it. it it explains why you have these things in long covid. And I said yeah but nobody knows that. She said of yeah. course your GP would know that your GP would have your records. I said but my GP hasn't been interested in talking to me about this at all. And she, she said that's the primary function of a GP. They have your whole history and they are able to approach this holistically, which was something I hadn't considered because I had managed to get help outside of my GP because the GP was unable to give me any themselves.
0: But they're so constrained. I recently learned that even medications, unless you ask them to look up your list of medications because of the interactions, they don't necessarily have to anymore. and so you should say to them oh by the way I've got this new medication will it interact with any of my other ones because they're not going to look at it without you asking them to look at it they just that's a new time-saving I don't know protocol the
2: the demand is just you know it's it's double what we had prior to COVID Wow. yeah there's 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 no more funding there's no more there's no more time And, and that combined with you know staff sickness because of all the isolations Combined with burnout, because people are just done. Um, you know, the, it, people are the morale is incredibly low in general practice right now. Which, we've and heard all of that combined. We've
1: heard it from other from specialties as well that morale is really yeah. low, and I think it, it's a general exhaustion, isn't it? Because of what yeah. all of you have had to do over the last eighteen months.
2: I think the whole country's fatigued by the whole thing.
0: Well, listen. This is why we so we really wanted to have you on. We wanted a happy story, you know, someone, someone <laughs> to give us hope. The problem with long COVID or post-COVID or whatever we call it is the kind of remitting nature of it comes and it goes, which gives us yeah. a false sense of hope. So I was really keen that we could talk to you and listen to how you've managed to navigate the last year and come out on at the end of it. Not the same person that you were before, but... You know, pretty close and functioning mm. and smiley. It's lovely to see you.
1: <laughs> so lovely to see someone positive.
0: It's just a bonus that you are a doctor.
2: Well, there is hope for us, you know, and like we will get out of this. And for some of us, it will take months, and for some, it will take years. But we will get. And them.
1: I think that's one of the things from your story is uh, is don't expect it overnight, but with small changes and changes in your expectations of yourself. Yeah. Day by day, by day, um, that you can actually you can actually make progress.
0: I think, by Amy's own admission, she's much better, but she's still not the person she was before she had long COVID.
1: I think that's something we're all possibly going to have to come to terms with.
0: Yeah, it's like, it's learning that we have a disability or accepting that we have a disability or a chronic illness, however you want to call it, is something that we have to come to terms with and try and get the best possible physical outcome, mental outcome, by working with doctors and with experts and just listening to your body is is the best we can hope for at this
1: point. And really taking it right back to to the basics of self-care. Yeah. Like Dr. Manji said, there's no magic bullet. There is
0: nothing, one thing that's going to make us better. It's a series of small steps that we all have to take.
1: Join us next week as we hear others' experiences of long COVID. Share your stories and questions at tlcsessions.net. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for the latest updates. And if you found this interesting, please do subscribe.